And he is probably well known for one of the most doom and gloom sounding sermons you have ever heard the title of. The title of that sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And by now you probably realize that the name of that person I'm referring to is Jonathan Edwards. And to be fair, the sermon is doom and gloom that he preached all those years ago. But one of the things that was not characteristic of this man's life is that he was anything but um, somebody who was filled with doom and gloom and hate for anybody who was not a Christian, that he was one of the greatest uh, influencers in the lives of some, some current pastors and theologians of our day who yearn for and long for people to know the joy and the love and the peace of God, the beauty of Christ. Um, Jonathan Edwards was one of those people. But the one sermon we all know, or at least we know we've, we've heard of the title, is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it in July 8th in 1741 during the height of the Great Awakening at Enfield, Connecticut. He was probably traveling as he was doing it. During the Great Awakening, there were a lot of preachers who were going through and traveling to different churches and preaching in the various uh, churches that they were traveling to. And so he happened to be at Enfield that day. And actually, it is said, this is just legend, but it is said he wasn't even supposed to be preaching the sermon that day. It was supposed to be somebody else, but it ended up not working out. So he took his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, got up in the church in Enfield, Connecticut, and preached. But it didn't take long for the effect of his preaching to instantly, in a sense, cut his sermon short. People in Enfield were very resistant to any kind of preaching. The people in Enfield, Connecticut were very cold, apathetic even to the things of God. In fact, many preachers didn't enjoy going there because anytime they went to the church building, they saw people sitting in the pews who seemed not only indifferent to the things of God, but frankly, people who were even resistant to it. It's almost as if they didn't even want to be there to hear it. Jonathan Edwards was not a very outspoken person. He was very eloquent. He wrote a lot, but he wasn't a very bombastic personality. He just got up he had, it is said, that in his sermon notes, they were almost like the size of the palm of his hand, and he would be able to hold it in his hand and hide the notes that he had so that he could look up and see people as he was preaching. He probably took his sermon notes, got up in front of this congregation in Enfield, Connecticut, and just started preaching from a text in Deuteronomy. And he was warning them of the impending doom they had. In fact, here is an excerpt, just one paragraph or I guess a couple sentences from that sermon where he said this, and he's just reading it. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. Throughout the sermon, because he was fascinated with spiders for whatever reason, he actually used the illustration of a spider's web and described every human being as basically walking not on a sure rock foundation, but as on a spider web that could break at any moment and plunge you into the depths of hell. He was passionately crying to the people at Enfield, Connecticut to awaken out of their sleep, to go from people who were apathetic at best and spiritually dead at worst 
to being awakened to the reality of their spiritual status before God and of the righteous wrath of God. This is not a topic you hear a lot of the evangelical preachers of our day preaching. It seems like very few people are preaching this kind of message anymore. There, nobody wants to hear death and gloom and hell and judgment because a lot of times that's what it seems like Christians, all, all they care about is that they want to condemn everybody and they want everybody to go to hell. And so we pendulum swing the other way sometimes to cater to the culture. The God of the Old Testament, he's, he's a God who is kind of angry. You know, he's pretty, pretty upset all the time. You see outbursts of anger, Uzzah reaching out just to, to hold the cart so that the, the ark of the Lord doesn't fall in the dirt. And God, in a very strange act of anger, strikes him dead at that moment. And we don't understand this God of the Old Testament. But the God of the New Testament is a God of love, a God of acceptance, a God of mercy. And many people who wish to mock Christianity try to tell us that that is why they can't accept it. Because it's almost like your God has two masks. On one side, he has a mask of anger and frustration at everybody who goes across, crosses against him, goes against him, resists his will, but then all of a sudden, arbitrarily and at random, he'll switch his mask and have a smiling face towards you. The reality is, the Bible teaches that God is a God of holiness, a God of justice, a God of righteousness, a God who is pure, a God who is holy. And as Pastor Dixon preached this morning, in order for us to understand our sin, we have to first understand who God himself is. It's only when I don't understand who God is that I could in any sense ever question his justice on the wicked. Because in my mind, I think, well, something that is loving and good and kind would be to show as much mercy as possible and to be as gracious as possible and to give as many chances as possible. That's the most loving thing to do. But in that moment, you're totally forgetting that God is holy and God is just. And he cannot Tolerate your sin. Any sin is a violation of his holy character. And I think in moments of mercy, he extends to us little glimpses of what his wrath looks like. Do you remember when the people came to Jesus? And they said, hey, you remember that tower that was over in Salome? There was like 18 people just randomly walking by and all of a sudden this tower just fell down right on top of them. What's with that, Jesus? Were those people like especially bad sinners? How did that happen? And Jesus doesn't answer that question the way they were expecting. They probably expected him to say, oh man, I know all things and I can tell you, whew, they were the bad ones. But he doesn't say that. He says, I tell you, they weren't any worse than any of the rest of you. But I'll tell you this, here's what you learned from this story. You better repent or your fate will be just like them. The calamities that God sometimes allows to happen happen, I think, to remind us that he has been incredibly merciful to us. The very next breath you took, just this moment, was only because he gave it to you. The breath of the most wicked dictator and political figure you can think of is only given to him by God. If God wanted to, in a moment, he could wipe out any single one of us. And he would be perfectly just in doing it. Because none of us are holy. None of us are righteous. We're all the opposite 
of what we should be. We were created to have a relationship with him, to be perfect even as he is perfect, to be pure even as he is pure, to be righteous even as he is righteous, but we are not. And so the question is, well, what is God going to do about it? And we almost seem like God is obligated to show mercy to us. Well, we kind of made a mistake, God. You know, Adam and Eve, whoops, that was a big mistake in the garden. So cut us a little bit of slack here. Show us some mercy here. Eventually, everyone's going to get to you. And then, frankly, that's what a lot of people think. If we just believe that God is so kind and good to everybody, everybody's going to get to heaven because he just, we just can't fathom the thought that he would send anybody into eternal torture. We have forgotten who God is. And there are moments in Scripture, there are moments in our lives, in his providence, where he gives us a, an unveiling, just a small sliver of a window of his just wrath on sin. Right now, Jonathan Edwards Pastor Dixon this morning, myself tonight, all are appealing to sinners to repent because they have a chance. There is given to them the next breath to keep their heart beating. The the football player who collapsed last Sunday, his heart stopped. They were able to get his heart going again. God gave him his next breath. He has yet another chance, if he has not trusted Christ, he has yet another chance by the mercy of God to respond to the gospel. We have this now. I'm appealing to anyone in this room who does not know Christ to repent and turn to Christ to be saved from their sins and the wrath of God. But one day, it's going to be over. There will be no chance for the wicked. Their doom will be sure. And it is what this text is describing. These bold judgments... We should not, in a sense, and I say this lightly, uh, I don't say this lightly, I say this very seriously, in a sense, we should not feel sorry for these people. And I'm going to show you in a moment why. Because these people have sealed their fate. And anybody who refuses to submit to the call of the gospel is not a poor, unfortunate soul. They are a condemned rebel and deserve the righteous wrath of God. Now, I only say this as somebody who was once one, but has been graciously redeemed by the king and now appealing to all sinners to repent. But anyone who continues to resist and continues to say, no, I don't want God, I don't want God, I don't want Jesus, I don't want the gospel, then they are doing something to their peril. They're rebelling against the king of kings and lord of lords. And in the end, this is their doom. It's described in this text. The judgment of God one day is going to be fast. Right now, as people who love God, we see wickedness prevail and we think, why is he taking so long? 2,000 years of church history, people who have been burned at the stake, people who have been, had their, their heads cut off, even in modern day, all because they say, I love Jesus and I want to follow him. And God just watches it happen. Why is he letting this happen? Why isn't he vindicating them now? He says, wait, there is a day coming. And when it comes, it's going to be fast. Because when it happens in chapter 16, verse 1, it's instantaneous. Look at verse 1, where we see that God's wrath will surely come. Verse 1, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, these were the ones that were mentioned and described in chapter 15 that Pastor Dixon preached on this morning, Go your ways. Pour out the vials, or your translation might say, pour out the bowls 
of the wrath of God upon the earth. It's over. There's no more chance to repent. These people have sealed their fate. And to be, to be completely frank with you, to be completely candid, they don't want their fate changed. In fact, let me just, this is skipping ahead, but let me just show you this. Look down at verse 9. This is not where I'm preaching from, but look down at verse 9. One of the, the bowls that are poured, the fourth one in verse 8, is that this, this bowl is poured upon the sun. Powers was given to him to scorch men with fire. And so the men were scorched with great heat in verse 9. And does it say, wow, we messed up. God, forgive us. We repent in dust and ashes. We were wrong. You were right. Or some of those people who say, look, I don't even believe there is a God. But I tell you, if there was some kind of manifestation, some kind of manifestation of a a miraculous act of God, then I'd believe. Well, here it is. Here is the sun being poured out with intense heat on these people. And their response is not begging God for forgiveness. Saying, you are the king. I recognize I'm a rebel. Forgive me. Have mercy upon me. That's not their response. After four bowl judgments, verse 9, they blasphemed the name of God which has power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. In a word, this is what they wanted, to hate God. They don't want him. And they know he's the one doing it. Look down at verse 11. After the fifth angel pours out his bowl, and the seed of the beast in his kingdom was full of darkness, verse 11 They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. These are not people who are unfortunate souls who made a mistake. These are people who are out and out rebels and hate God. They don't want him. And they know he is doing these things and they curse his name. And in case two wasn't enough times, to prove to you that this is what was in their hearts. Verse 21. There is a great earthquake. The seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air, and there's a great voice out of the, out of the temple saying it's done. Earthquakes happened. There is, uh, verse 19, the cities of the nations fell. Great Babylon came and remembers before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Every island falls away. The mountains are not found. I mean, it's just this cataclysmic event And verse 21, there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Three times these people demonstrate what's truly in their hearts after seven bold judgments are poured out on them. They don't want him. And sometimes I think we have the tendency to believe that that's just the way men's hearts are someday. That it's only once God finally takes the church out, raptures the church out, and somehow, you know, then, then God's going to send this great delusion on everybody and their hearts will be especially hardened. But right now, everyone's kind of just a blank slate. We've got to really try to convince them. Basically, they're at a, there's a fork in the road. They're, they really don't have any disposition one way or the other, so we've got to somehow convince them to go the right way instead of the wrong way. 
But I really believe that just as we see in the rest of the Bible, the manifestation of what is in the hearts of these people as they experience these bold judgments is really what is in the heart of every single sinner. Every single sinner does not natively want God. We don't. Our disposition is not that of ambivalence. Our disposition is not that of apathy. Our disposition is that of hatred. I do not want God. That's what pride is. Pride is saying, I want my way. I don't want God's way. That's what we all are. And it literally takes an act of God to change your heart. That's why I say over and over again whenever I preach, the only reason any of us are saved is because God mercifully reached down and saved us. He made us willing because if he didn't, I never would be. What my heart wants is sin. What my heart wants is to resist God. What my heart wants is to elevate myself above God. And if God does not place some kind of restraining grace in my life, if God does not overpower my inclination to sin and to love my sin and to hate him, then I am lost forever. The only way that that will ever, ever be overcome is if the gospel is embraced. It is not if somebody gives enough money to a church. It's not if somehow we can morally reform society. It's not if somehow we could have a Christian nation made up of Christian principles that somehow then people will have a natural disposition to want to love God. It is only the working of God that transforms the heart because naturally we hate him. Any one of you in this room who trusted Christ as your Savior only did so because God graciously removed the blinders from your eyes. These people who experience these bold judgments of God are getting what they want. Another reason to hate God. God's wrath is going to surely come because in verse 1, when there's this great voice that cries out, it says, Go your ways. This is not a, all right, this may be one more chance for everybody. This is a sure proclamation of, I have been waiting for this moment to come, and now it has come. Go. And judgment is finally unleashed on the rebellious sinners. God's wrath will surely come. There's no question. And he tells his saints, don't worry, wait. My justice will come. The people who cut your head off, the people who hung you, the people who burned you at the stake, they will experience justice from me. Never fear. But we can be thankful that now, for now, the time being, God has a disposition of mercy and is, as the scripture says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so what is our call? to do exactly what Jesus told us to do. Go into all the world and preach the only message that's going to transform a rebel heart. The gospel. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the message. That's the call. We must obey it. What we're talking about here is now, the judgment has surely come. There's no more preaching the gospel 
There's no more giving these people a chance to repent, to hear the gospel one more time. Frankly, up to this point, when they've heard the gospel, it has not softened their heart. It has only further compounded their judgment because they heard the truth and refused to believe it. Now, the judgment has come. And so we move from God's wrath surely coming to, number two, God's wrath will be upon his enemies. If you look at verse two and then parts of the following verses as well, the, the first bowl is poured out upon the earth and there fell, it says, a noisome and grievous sore upon men which had the mark of the beast upon them which worshipped his image. This bowl judgment is poured out not on God's elect, not on God's special people whom he has given his special affection and love and protection and assurance that he will always be there with them. This bowl is poured out on the people who defected and further solidified their fate by identifying as being those who are children of the beast. Because remember, when Pastor Dix and I preached through the mark of the beast, we don't know what the mark exactly is, but whatever the case is, it certainly is a representation of the fact that you are identifying as being the child of that leader. God has a mark upon his children, his 144,000. There's marks upon their heads. God has marks upon his children. Even us as Christians, we have the mark of the Holy Spirit upon us, the seal of our redemption. These people have the mark of the beast and they worshiped his image. These are not God's friends. These are not poor, unfortunate souls. These are rebels who have violated the law of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and who have said, not only do I not want to obey you, I want to do the opposite. I want to worship anyone and everything else except you. And so what does God do? There's no more chance for them to repent. He pours out bowl number one on those who are his enemies. They're not God's friend. They're not wayward children. They're enemies. He says that as well in the following verses. Because in, when, when he pours out the other bowls upon the waters and they praise God, in verse 6 it says, you have judged this to be Verse 6, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. These are not your friends. They hate you, and they hate your people. They're not doing anything that God commends. They're not poor, unfortunate souls. They're rebels. And such were we once. We were rebels once, too. But we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb by the sheer grace, sheer kindness, sheer mercy of God so that we can enjoy the beauty of Christ. We can enjoy the glories of the presence of God once more. These people are his enemies and he pours out his wrath and judgment and vengeance upon them. So God's wrath will surely come. God's wrath will be upon his enemies. And finally, number three, God's wrath will be just. Nobody in hell is going to be shaking their fist at God and saying, why am I here? Nobody in hell is going to be talking back to God and bartering and bargaining with him because they know they deserve to be there. 
When Jesus gave the story of the rich man and Lazarus in the book of Luke, do you remember the rich man is in torments and he lifts up his eyes and he sees Lazarus in the arms, as it were, in the bosom of Abraham? The rich man doesn't cry out to Abraham and say, Hey, I think there was a mistake in the bookkeeping. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm, I'm one of the good guys. He doesn't say that. The rich man, the only thing he can think of is the torment of the wrath of God that he is in. And he doesn't ask to be taken out of it. The only thing he asks is, can I get at least some relief? I know I deserve this. But I just want, just, just dip your finger in the water and just let it drop on my tongue just once. Just give me a little bit of relief. He knows that his justice that he received was right and good. These people who experience these bold judgments of God blaspheme the name of God. They hate him, and they know it's him doing it. But it is described by the angelic messengers as something which is right and good. Notice with me here, In verse 5, I heard the angel of the water saying, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and which wast and shalt be because thou hast judged thus. Here's what your judgment was. These people, verse 6, have shed the blood of your people. And so you've given them blood to drink. And he says, for they are worthy. This is what they get. And verse 7, I heard another out of the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Both sides, those who have been redeemed by God and those who are being damned to his judgment know that God's acts are just. Both of them the people who one day stand before the great white throne judgment will know that what they experienced in the lake of fire ultimately will be their just desserts. And the people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ will know that they didn't deserve to be with him, but that God still was just because those people were redeemed at the cost. The judgment was poured out upon the life of of Jesus Christ. So that when I stand in a white robe one day with my eyes probably filled with tears, overwhelmed at the thought that God should be so gracious to reach down and to save me, where I frankly deserve to experience the exact same thing these people are in Revelation 16, that he's going to wipe away that tear. He's going to say, You're my child. Jesus is going to say, I paid it all for you. You don't have to fear. You will not see the disposition of the wrath of God because I did. Instead, you are welcome in my presence forevermore. Both sides know justice was served. For the Christian, it was served on Jesus. For the rebel who refuses to embrace the gospel... 
he will pay for his sins forever. These bold judgments, the second and third ones, really are are essentially because of the fact that these people attacked during the tribulation the saints of God. Because in verse four, the, the, excuse me, verse three, the second angel poured out his vial on the sea. It becomes the blood like a dead man. Literally everything inside the sea dies. There's no living creatures in it anymore because they're dead. In verse four, the third angel pours out his bowl upon the rivers and fountains of waters. They become blood. There's no more water. You know you're supposed to have water to survive. There's no more water. Because they drank, as it were, metaphorically, the blood of God's people. And God says, now this is literally what you have to drink. At some point during the tribulation, this will probably be the judgment of God upon people who hate him. And God's wrath will be judged. He will be just. He will recompense the wicked. And he is righteous in his judgments. The reason why I emphasize this is because that is not what people believe when they hear the wrath and just judgment of God. When they hear the wrath of God, they think, that's horrible. That's terrible. What kind of God would do that? And like I said, it's only when you don't understand who God is that you would ever ask that question. God is infinitely holy. And we are rebels against the king. He's under no obligation to save any of us. Frankly, in the Garden of Eden, God had every right to just wipe out Adam and Eve in that moment and start over. He had every right. But instead of immediately killing Adam and Eve, which he had the right to do and he promised he would do, you will surely die. He gives them their next breath. They breathe again and again and again. When I was born, God had every right to immediately wipe me off the face of the planet because I was not born with the disposition to love God. I wasn't born this blank slate where hopefully society treats, uh, teaches me to be a good, upstanding citizen and somehow I end up making the right choice to trust Jesus. I was born with the innate disposition because of my parent, Adam and Eve, to hate God. And God had every right to kill me. But he gave me my next breath. And my next breath. And my next breath. And praise his name. He gave me to parents who brought me faithfully to church every Sunday. Where I heard the preaching of the word of God. And where one Sunday when I was six years old. I heard a sermon on hell. And it terrified me. I didn't know all of what was going on. I didn't even understand the significance of my sinfulness. All I knew is that I didn't want to go there. But I was very shy, very quiet, and I didn't want to walk the aisle at the end of every sermon when the pastor was inviting people to respond to the gospel. I was terrified. I was terrified of hell, but I didn't want to walk in front of everybody. But one Sunday, it was a morning service, I couldn't take it anymore. I just knew I got to get this right. I have no, no idea. I'm six years old. I have no idea if I'm going to live till next Sunday. I got to get this right. And so I finally gathered the courage on the second verse of whatever hymn it was. I know it was the first verse I was really wrestling, and I remember the second verses when I went up, that my dad took me back to our pastor's study, and he clearly presented the gospel to me. And frankly, in the moment, I didn't understand the significance of what he was saying. So I didn't really know or pay attention to what he was saying. All I knew was, whatever I got to do to not go to that place called hell, that's what I want to do. 
So he finally said, do you want to trust Christ as your Savior? And I said, yes, I do. And so he said, well, pray after me. And I, I prayed the sinner's prayer with him. And, and maybe the Lord saved me that day. I don't think I, I was saved, but maybe he did. I just remember being so excited that I was like, finally, I made this right. I'm not going to hell. But then night after night, I have two other younger brothers. I, we had a bunk bed and a rollaway bed underneath it. And my youngest brother was on the rollaway bed. My next youngest was on the, the uh, bottom bunk, and I was on the top. And I just remember night after night, staring at the ceiling, the same spot every time, and wondering, did I pray it right? Did I get the words right? Was I sincere enough? In fact, that, for me especially, was the hardest one because I didn't know if I was sincere enough. Did I have to say it a certain way? Did I have to be more emotional about it? I didn't know. All I knew is night after night, I would lay in bed and I would wonder, will I wake up tonight or tomorrow morning? Because if I don't, I want to know that I'm going to heaven. And so every night, I would say, God, I don't even remember this is, this is literally what I said. I don't even remember if yesterday happened. I don't even know if the night before I prayed to get saved again. And so tonight, I mean it this time. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I pray and I trust Jesus again. If, if I wasn't sincere enough last time, if it didn't even happen, I don't care. how. I just don't want to go to hell. Night after night, that happened. And I'm not sure if it was through the process of um, vacation Bible school or it's the preaching that our pastor was doing, but finally one night, it literally was as if a light bulb went off. And I was like, wait a minute. This, this is ridiculous. I'm trying to get the right formula. I'm trying to get the right words down. I'm trying to make sure that I muster up enough emotion to be sincere about what I'm doing. But Jesus died for my sins because I'm a sinner. And I'm supposed to trust in his death and resurrection for me to have life. It's not my prayer. It's the fact that I'm trusting in what he did for me to save me. And I believe I was seven or eight years old when it happened. Either way, in that moment, Rodney King was graciously and mercifully saved by God. And anybody in this room who has trusted Christ alone for their salvation has been mercifully and graciously saved by God. And anybody in this room who has not yet done that has an opportunity now to hear the gospel and be mercifully and graciously saved by God to escape the wrath to come. Right now, anybody who doesn't believe the gospel is truly a sinner in the hands of an angry God but he is also a God who is expressing mercy to you in this moment. And he wants you to know that you must obey the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's my prayer tonight, that anybody who does not know Christ would escape the wrath to come through the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have mercifully saved your people from their sins. Thank you that even though sometimes in Scripture we may not always understand the significance of what we read, nevertheless, you are always gracious and good and kind in letting us hear it one more time. I don't know who all in this room does not know you, Lord. You do. You know the hearts of each person here. You know the destinies of each person here. 
I am begging you to take your spirit and impress upon those who do not know you as their savior to trust Christ today. Today is the day of salvation, you tell us. Lord, the rest of us who have been redeemed, we once were rebels, enemies of you, children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins. And were it not for your gracious mercy, we would experience the same judgment that we read about in Revelation 16. Your just, holy, righteous wrath forever. But in mercy, you pursued our rebel hearts and you redeemed us from the grave so that now we can be singing the song of the redeemed. And we are part of this people that you are gathering from every tribe and nation and tongue from all time to be a people for yourself who are longing for the day when Christ will be revealed and we shall ever be with you all because you mercifully saved us. Lord, my response to that, and I hope that's the response of people in this room, is to love you passionately and to be forever grateful for your salvation and forgiveness. Please help us go into this week with a passion to proclaim the gospel to the lost and to proclaim your glory among the nations, praising you and thanking you for what you have done, all because of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.